Amen. I was reading this wonderful book by a pastor out on the West Coast named Francis Chan. Some of you might have heard of Francis Chan before. He's written a number of pretty solid books. And uh, Francis Chan's writing this book on what is a church? Well, what, what are we doing in a room like this on a Sunday morning? And he pulled a number of pastors aside and he asked them some very specific questions. And the first question was this. Pastors, what do you think your congregation expects out of your church? And here's a summary of the answers he got. A really good service, Sunday service, strong age-specific ministries, a certain style of volume, length, time of singing, style of singing, a well-communicated sermon, parking, and the most important, coffee. <laughs> and everyone said, amen. And then he'll go back to those same leaders, and he'll say, all right, all right, that's what you think your people want. Tell me, what do you think Jesus wants? What, what's he aiming for with the church? And those pa same pastors will then say, all right, love one another as I have loved you. That's John 15, verse 12. Uh, how about look after widows and orphans in their distress? That's James chapter 1, verse 27. Muslim said, make disciples of all nations. That's uh, Matthew 28. And he looks at them and he says, all right, what do you think would disappoint your people more? If you didn't do the things on the first list, or if you didn't do the things on the second list. In other words, would you still come if we didn't have coffee? You know, when you think about your church, we, we've got this thing we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ died and resurrected. He's the head of the church and he's building this kingdom. This kingdom that is totally life-changing, that heals us first and then works through us to change others. And it's the centerpiece of all history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every local church is an expression of the gospel at work through what Jesus is continuing to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. What are your expectations when you come to a place like this? What, what are you expecting to happen as you engage on a Sunday morning in this place? How would you judge a church? If you're just stopping by, you're not necessarily committed, and maybe you're checking out a handful of different churches. As you go through and you go from church to church, what is it? What if they serve Folgers instead of intelligentsia? Or are you looking for what Jesus is concerned about? A church is much more than a building. I hope you know this. When I grew up, my understanding of what a church was is I came to this building on a Sunday. It was this place, it was this structure where you did religious stuff on a Sunday, and then it was kind of disconnected from the rest of my life and my week. But that's not what a church is. A church is not a building. The term for church, ecclesia, it's this Greek term. It means this communal, this community that's lit on fire by Jesus Christ. A church is a group of people that have been so radically changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, so radically changed by Jesus in their life that they are knit together in the pursuit of the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, and they're spreading the fragrant aroma of the gospel to the nations beginning with their neighbors. That's a church. Now, how many of you, when you think about what you're involved in on a Sunday, think of that? Here's my expectation. Every time we come into a place like this, every Sunday morning as I'm praying, I walk around, I pray over every one of these seats with some others of you who join me for that. And when I'm praying, what I'm hoping for happens in this place, I want Jesus to show up and steal the show. 
and I want him to wreck you. Honestly, it's like kind of a, a mean prayer, but I hope that every Sunday you come in this place and you are just wrecked by Jesus, that he does this work where the word of God gets right down into the nitty-gritty of your heart and reveals to you that you're not quite glorified yet, that we haven't made it to heaven yet, that we still got a bunch of work for Jesus to do on us, and he's got to do that convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And I can't do it. A great band can't do it. Jesus alone, by the power of the Spirit, can do that. So when I'm praying what's going to happen in this place, I want us to be wrecked by Jesus. And I want us to leave here saying, I need him more than I've ever needed him in my whole life. What's your vision for the church? Today we're celebrating, not really celebrating, but this is what we call Vision Sunday. We do this at the beginning of every September because it kind of kicks off the ministry year. What are we about? What are we going to do in this place? What are we hoping happens over the length of our church ministry year? And, and I've chosen a bit of a, an obscure passage. I don't know of any other pastor I've heard of ever given a vision message on Acts chapter 18. But to me, this passage hit me like a ton of bricks over the summer. Like a ton of bricks. I read it, and then I looked and I said, that's it. That's it. If that can be infused in our people, then we got it. We're, we're going somewhere. This is what I want to have happen in us. Acts chapter 18. From this passage, I want to pull out three loves, three passions that I want to be true of us. There are many more loves that I'm not going to get to today, but from this passage, three passions that I want to be true of us collectively as a community. First one's really tough. You ready for it? I want us to have a love for Jesus. Could we get any more simple than that? Let, let, me, let me fill that out a little bit for us. I want us to have a bold, zealous, genuine, restful, contented, joy-filled, eternal, awesome, soul-filled, spirit-filled, radical, risk-taking, crazy love for Jesus. That's what I want. I want us to be so captivated by him that we're compelling to someone who looks in on us. Let me show you from the text. Acts 18, verses 24 and 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. Let's pause there. What do we learn about this guy named Apollos? Well, the first thing we learn is he's from a city called Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. It's right on the northern coast of Egypt along the Mediterranean Sea. And so he was a big city guy. Alexandria is a, a city with a lot of history. The great library was there. It was a place where all the intellectuals of the day gathered and they'd study and they'd bounce religious ideas off of each other. And there was a huge population of Jewish people there. In fact, if you know a little of church history, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that's a very important ancient text, was translated in Alexandria. There was this amazing culture of talking about the big questions of life. Talking about philosophy and, and, and math and the things that were happening in the world. He was a big city guy. He was familiar with many different opinions and thoughts about how the world worked. And in the midst of the hustle and bustle, we're told that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Now, what does that mean? 
he came from the Jewish faith, but, but this man had become a Christian, I believe. There's some debate on whether or not he was a follower of Christ based on these passages. I believe fully he was a follower of Christ at this point, rooted in his Jewish faith, and then he had accepted Jesus as his Savior. He was an eloquent man. That, that word means that he was knowledgeable of the scriptures. He was learned and he was able to communicate the things he had learned to everyone around him. This is a guy who, the Bible was more than a reference book on his shelf from time to time. This was a guy who the very words of God kind of formed the foundation by which he saw and interpreted all of, his, all of reality. His emotions did not determine what was true. His emotions and personal thoughts did not determine what was ethically correct. His word of God that he read formed the foundation of how he engaged with everyone. All these different ideas in a city like Alexandria. And he was rooted, competent in the scriptures. And it was compelling to people around him. That's why he was called eloquent. People saw him and they, they said, man, this is a guy who's clearly built his life on something else. He's not messing around. The word of God is the foundation of everything. He's a Bible guy. Now, look at the next one, verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Find your place in the passage, ready? He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25, and being, read it out loud, shout it. Fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. Oh, I love this guy, Apollos. He had a zeal for the Lord. I think we got ourselves a charismatic brother here. This guy, this guy had the Holy Spirit and it was compelling to people. This guy was led by the Spirit of God. You know, when you accept Jesus Christ, something happens in your life. Jesus says in the Gospels, in John 17, he says, it's better for you that I leave you, physically, Jesus, that I leave you because then the helper will come. The Holy Spirit then dwells inside of you and something happens where it just takes over your life. You can't explain it, but there's this deep love of Jesus and it's evident to everybody around him. He was fervent in spirit. I want us to know and love Jesus with such a fervency of spirit that people take notice around us. Are you fervent in spirit? When you go to your workplace and you're around the, the coffee machine, you're getting your cup of coffee, you're, you're on the CTA and you're getting your train, you're reading your news and you're, you're, you're kind of catching up with the people that you normally kind of fall into the rhythms of life with. Do they look at you and they go, well, he's got something about him. She's got something about her. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. It's constantly on your lips. It's shaping how you engage in conversation. There's a love of Jesus that takes place. And before we can talk about anything else, what we want to do, we've got to be rooted in being filled by the Holy Spirit and loving Jesus. Now, how does that happen in a person's life? It sounds all good. Sounds good. How do we get there? Before the gospel tells you what to do, it tells you who you are. Listen to that very carefully. Before it tells you what to do, it tells you who you are. And unless you are rooted so life-changingly in the gospel power to define who you are and to tell you what you are in Christ Jesus, you're never going to grow any fruit. It's got to be anchored in who you are and who God says you are in the gospel. Then it's like a seed that gets planted in fertile soil. And out of that seed, as you continue to water, it grows this beautiful plant. You've got to be rooted in the love of God. 
this love of God that looks at you in all your sin and says, because of Jesus, I see your sin and I just pour grace upon grace upon grace into your life. There's nothing you can bring to God in Christ Jesus that he looks on you and sees anything other than an adopted son and daughter into the kingdom. Think of all the stuff you've done. I've got plenty in my list. All the stuff you've thought all the things that should keep you from God and fill you with shame, and you sit there and you go, I can't believe I did it again. And then you go before the cross, and here's what happens, like waves crashing along a beach incessantly. Grace upon grace upon grace. And you just say, yeah, but, but I've done. And God just says, grace, grace more grace, and then you go and sin, and you screw it up, and you can't get your thoughts right, and God's just saying, grace, grace, it's not you, it's God, he's given you everything you need. Until we know who we are, we're never going to get this thing. Remember the Lord's Prayer, how did Jesus teach us to pray? First two words of the Lord's Prayer, someone shout it for me. Our Father, pause. Our Father, See, that, that's, that's incredible. Other religions don't refer to God as Father like this. That's not a thing. It's Christianity that refers to God as Father. And it's because of what the gospel has done. How many of you, when you get down on your knees to pray, you, you, you say, our Father, and then you rush off to all the things that you have to do? God, will you bring peace to this person in my life? Will you fix this situation? Will you change me? I'm, I'm torn here. I need your help. And we race through the identity. Our Father. What I want to form in us, this is the vision. This is, it. this is like everything. Nothing can happen until we get this right. I want to form this sitting in the presence of Jesus with our hands open and just saying, Our Father pause and just let that be and every other prayer you can wait till tomorrow just sit in the grace of Jesus because it's that good he sees you in all your sin all your brokenness and says I'm your father I love you I sent my son to die on the cross for you and you get all the grace you need as many times as you screw up grace upon grace we got to root ourselves there and until that becomes our identity everything else is going to feel like begrudging religion and we'll never keep up with all the stuff we got to do. We got to sit as a community in that place of saying our Father. Two weeks ago, my incredible wife posted this Facebook post. We're going through a, a family change in this season. Our kids are growing up. My oldest right here in the front row, little blondie, she's five. And she's going to kindergarten. Ruth, you're sitting in your first dad's sermon. And I'm mentioning you. I love you, sweetheart. Uh, and she's five. And she's off at kindergarten. And our twins are three years old, and they're adopted out of Chicago's foster care system, and they are in preschool. And so they're from 8 to noon, five days a week. And so my wife has this extra time in her schedule. She writes this Facebook post. She posted a picture of a bench looking out over Lake Michigan. People keep asking me, so what are you going to do with your time, with your kids in school? Well, the first thing I felt my heart needed to do is rest. I didn't realize that being a mom to three and one who expresses actions of trauma could be so exhausting. Hours of screaming and being the object to express anger at and hit creates a spirit of being worn down and you don't realize how much you need a moment of quiet. If you're a mom out there that is walking through a season like we are, I will gladly listen and pray for you and let you cry. 
Today, as I sat at this bench and just worshiped the Lord, somehow finding words and thankfulness for how this trying season of parenting has kept me tethered so close to my creator. How this season is revealing my deep sins in my soul that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. I'm thankful for great teachers who are already loving my daughters and the team of people surrounding our family. So my quick answer is rest. Rest in the goodness of the Lord and thanking him for his grace. Man, I love you. Life throws a lot of pain, a lot of hard stuff. And there's not one person in this room that's exempt from hard stuff. There's so much good. There's so much joy, so much sweet stuff in life. And there's hard pain as well. And Jesus says he will always be enough. You never need to race through your identity to get to the more important stuff. When you know and you're rested in Jesus, he's enough for today. It's good enough for today. Let everything else pass. Let the world run a thousand miles an hour trying to fix the problems in their life. Let the Christians sit at a park bench and say, our Father, pause. That's enough. That's enough. Church, vision, big, big vision. That's it. If we can sit there, we've accomplished everything I want to see happen. I want you to be formed in the gospel, and I want to root us in the love of Jesus. Number two, I want us to have a love of discipleship. A love of discipleship. If that sounds like a goofy word, I'll explain it in a second. We see this in Acts 18, verses 25 to 26. We meet this guy, Apollos, and then in 25, it says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this amazing godly couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, what's happening here? Here's Apollos. He's been raised on the Jewish Old Testament. And someone, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet at this point, it hadn't been recorded in writing, it was oral tradition at that point, first couple decades after Jesus ascended, someone had told him about Jesus, and he had believed on Jesus. And he was going around trying to explain to all his fellow Jewish people, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, and he was having an incredible, an incredible ministry. But he didn't know about the fullness of Jesus' teachings. He had been explained a lot about Jesus, but he didn't quite know about baptism yet. All he had heard about was the baptism of John the Baptist. He didn't know about the baptism that Jesus taught about. And so Priscilla and Aquila see this, and they they look in on this guy who's having this ministry, this powerful ministry, and they say, wow, look at what God's doing. And they, they say, let's pull him aside. There's some stuff he doesn't know that we could form in him. If we pull him aside and just train him a little bit, consider what God could do through that man. So they pull him aside. Think about what they're doing here. They got their head on a swivel, like a good quarterback. Not like Trubisky last Sunday. I'm just kidding. I love the Bears very much. They got their head on a swivel, right? Looking around when they come into the gathering like this. And they're seeing what God's doing. Look, look how he's moving. And they're spotting it. And they're spotting it. And they're not thinking about themselves. They're saying, how do I invest and pour my gifts out into this community? And they spot Apollos over there. And they say, oh, man. If that guy only knew about the baptism that Jesus taught about, man, God could do incredible things through that guy, and so they pull him aside. Now, the language for pulling aside is actually pulled into their home. They took him to a private place. I love that about this. 
think about this relationship. Here's this couple, this Ephesian couple, Priscilla and Aquila, great godly couple, and this Egyptian guy from Alexandria, Apollos. This is a beautiful picture of the multi-ethnic church. I, I preach on the multi-ethnic church all the time, and I'm so grateful for our congregation. I love what God's doing here. But when I preach on the multi-ethnic church, I really love pulling it from obscure passages that seem like it's not talking about it directly because the reality of the multi-ethnic church is it's the whole Bible. It's everywhere. God's people come together. Here's this Alexandrian Egyptian from northern Africa who found his way in Ephesus. He's single, they're married. He's from Alexandria, they're from Ephesus. He's probably got an accent and looks different. They have a different accent and look different than him. And they bring him to their home for dinner. Oh, that's it. That's it. If your vision for a multi-ethnic church is that you come into a room and people look differently than you, and then you go live segregated lives after this Sunday, you miss the purpose of the church. What God does in a room like this is he brings people from different heritages, different perspectives, different experiences, different countries, different languages, people that don't have much in common, but they got Jesus in common. Jesus unites all these different people. And because of that, these people that if left to their own might not form a family, form something pretty cool. They form a family and it begins around the dinner table, not on the Sunday gathering. They pull them aside. I want to challenge us on this. If you look around this room and you don't really know anybody, or you don't know anyone that looks or thinks or has a different perspective than you, get to work. Because pursuing the multi-ethnic church can't just be something the preacher preaches on. It's got to be your dinner table. you got to share life with each other. This is what we see happening with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. But it's more than just hanging out. This is what I love, discipleship. What do they do? They pull him aside, and then they instruct him in the ways of the Lord more accurately. If you're looking for community and friends, I think we do that pretty well. I think the church is good at making good friends and good community. But you know who else does that really well? Orange Theory, <laughs> soccer intramurals in the city, the Cubs, right? There's a lot, <laughs> really good community. There we go. There's a lot of places you can go to find good friends in the city and build meaningful community. People do it all the time. What makes the church different? What makes the church different is that when we get together, we got Christ in common, and we're pointing each other to Jesus. That doesn't mean every sentence needs to be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus when you hang out. Build friendships. But it does mean that when we get together, we're pointing each other towards Christ. We're praying over each other. No one gets off the hook. We're calling sin out in each other's lives. Not just the pastor on a Sunday, but in each other's homes. That's when it gets really fun. That's Christian community on fire. That's discipleship. We're looking at each other saying, man, I see something in you. Last week, someone from our congregation shot me a text message, spoke words of prophecy over me. Ooh, it was good. It was so good. So, so good. That song we just sang, that's what I felt like. And then she said this. She said, Pastor, this is what I heard from the Lord while I was praying today, and I need you to hear it. But test it. Make sure it's actually what God wants to say. So I prayed over it. I wasn't telling about the future. It was just speaking a word into my life. And it was from the Lord. I needed to hear it so bad. You know, what, you know what happened to me the next day? I do prayer walks on warm days every morning through UIC. 
And I was going through UIC early in the morning like this. Oh, God, just, you're so good, like this. And I'm just walking by people who are walking their dogs early in the morning. I'm like, I'm sorry. I know this looks weird. See, when we speak into each other like that, filled by the Spirit, speaking truth, bringing conviction, praying for one another, it fills you. I'm good for a year. I got enough passion and energy in me because of that one word someone spoke into my life to go for a year. I'm good. Are we speaking into each other's life? Are you popping in on a Sunday and popping out and getting back to your life? Or is this family and you're in it to see someone formed in Jesus? Now, how do we do this? We do it around the dinner table. There's a few other ways we do it too. If you got that discipleship workshop sheet when you came in, when you hold it up, it's a half sheet of paper. You should have got that. If you didn't get it, we'll make sure you get it on the way out. We've been working hard on these. These are going to be a series of classes. Notice Apollos. He needed instructing in the way of the Lord. All of us do. I still take classes from professors because I still got a lot to learn. No one's made it yet. We all need to learn stuff about Jesus. None of us have all our theology in order and we're thinking rightly about God on every area. I want your church to be a place where we're equipping you to think rightly about God. We all have wrong thoughts. That's okay. We're on a journey. Let's learn together. These are a series of classes. These aren't the only classes. It's just the ones we're going to offer this semester. we got about 25 other classes that we're preparing and putting material together for. All the registrations up online. Sign up. Be a part of these classes with us. I want us to grow in our knowledge of the word. Secondly, starting next week, we're starting a new sermon series through the book of Romans. This sermon series, we're going to go verse by verse through the entire book of Romans for nearly a year. It's going to take us 10 months. Why do we do this? One of the reasons as a church we preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, is because then me as a preacher, I'm not choosing the things I want to preach on. Because if I did that consistently, there's a bunch of stuff I might never talk about that are really important to the Word of God and to God. So when you preach verse by verse through a whole book of the Bible, you got to talk about everything. And Romans brings up a lot. I'm telling you, it brings up a lot. We're going to get a good foundation for God's word and how it applies to our life. Part of being part of a bigger church is that every week I get to kind of bounce ideas around with the other pastors. And we spent the last three months preparing for this Roman series. I want to give you a little behind-the-scenes peek at some of the ideas that you can expect as we prepare for Romans together. Turn to the screen behind me. In Christ as our Redeemer and Forgiver. Purity rooted in love because of Christ's desires. Verses 2, 1 through 16. That Paul is speaking to both believer and, I mean, everybody. Everybody is hearing this and saying there's an assumed justice. Hey Park, really excited to announce that on September 15th, we'll be starting our new sermon series in the book of Romans. For the next 10 months, we're going to be studying this book verse by verse. And the reason this is important for us is that as a church, we're committed to expositional Christ-centered preaching. It means that we want to hear from God, God's word, and not from man's opinion. And we also want to see Christ as the hero of every single sermon. As Martin Luther said about the book of Romans, it is the epitome of the gospel. You know, so often when you think about the gospel, you just think, well, it's just the ABCs of the faith. It's just something that I need to know for eternal salvation. But what we'll see in the book of Romans is that the gospel is the A to Z of our faith. Then in the book of Romans, we'll see the whole redemptive narrative. 
our depravity and sin, uh, God's sovereign plan, the victory of the cross. So no matter where you're at in your faith journey, if you're doubting, if you're growing, if you're thriving, join us for this series. As it says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Join us for this incredible sermon series because as the gospel goes forth, so does God's power to transform us and renew us. See you for our sermon series on September 15th. Get excited for Romans. This is going to challenge every one of us to grow and take big strides in our faith. So what are we about at the church and what do we see in this text? A love for Jesus. This bold, rooted love of just sitting in the goodness of Christ. A love for discipleship that we're speaking into one another and we're actually taking growth, real steps in the knowledge of the word. And number three, this is so important, a love for reaching the lost. A love for reaching the lost. You know, when Jesus gets a hold of you and when you understand what God's done for you in Christ, you can't help but want everyone else to know about it. I've developed a habit of going out and sharing the gospel with people in the streets of Chicago. Every week I go out and these conversations I've been having have been phenomenal. And one of the things I've found is people are open and eager. They want to talk about spiritual things. Sure, some folks say, no, I don't want to have a conversation, but many say yes. And I get to ask about Jesus and find out where they are and help them get corrected in their mis misguided thinkings on who Jesus was many times. Let me show you from the text. Acts chapter 18, verses 27. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, that's across the Mediterranean Sea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Here in this early church in Ephesus, the church has this person who God is clearly using. Apollos had this ministry in Ephesus. It would be like having a gathering here, just like this. And you got one person that clearly God's got his hand in. And people are coming to faith in Jesus. And it's powerful. And everyone's being encouraged by it. And then they do something crazy, right? They do what m many pastors wouldn't dare of doing. But the Bible does it. Most pastors, when you get somebody like that, you say, okay, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> we need you in this room. We need you, like, spreading that with all of us so we can build, build, build. You know what they do? They send him off. They send him to another church. They take their best and they send him off because they have a passion for people that don't know Jesus and they know that another church somewhere else needs his skill set. They send off their best. Here at Park, we've got this passion for sending our best. Sometimes when we send people off, I'll call ahead to another pastor who, where they're going. When someone leaves to another church, they move to the suburbs or move to another city, and I'll call their new pastor, and you know what I'll say? I'll say, you're getting a goodie. <laughs> you're, get, you're getting a real goodie here. I want you to know, get them plugged in. And other pastors will call me and do the same thing. Why? Because that's exactly what they did with Apollos. They send him off to Ephesus. They write ahead, and they say, hey, get this guy plugged in. He's a powerhouse. Now, we love sending our best off at Park. This is not just something we talk about. This is actually the history of the church. Let me, let me remind us how we got in this room. How, how did this happen? Because this is pretty cool. How did we get here? 30 years ago, a pastor at Moody Church named Matt Hurd. Moody is a big church in the city up on the north side. A pastor named Matt Hurd with 100 people got sent out from Moody Church. 
and they called themselves Park Community Church. Erwin Lutzer, who was the pastor at Moody, took one of his best pastors, Matt Hurd, sent him and planted him with a whole crew of their people and planted them up on the north side and made Park Community Church. Park continued to grow over the years. And then back in 2010, Park had a vision to plant more locations around the city. They didn't just want to reach the north side. They wanted to go south and west. So they had this vision to send a many of their folks, about 60 folks, to go plant a new church with Pastor Kenson Lamb. Look at this. That's day one in near south. This church, when it was first planted by Kenson in 2010, met in University Village. And 60 or 70 folks from Park up on the north side moved down here and planted a church. They sent off their best. I came in a couple years later and became the pastor of this location. The church continued to grow. At that point, we were meeting over in about East Pilsen area, if you know where that is. And then, what happened? We sent off about 60 or 70 of our folks again. Kenson Lamb came back as another pastor, and we launched the Bridgeport location. That is meeting right now. They have a thriving church in Bridgeport, and we partner with them in many of our endeavors. But we took 60, 70 of our best, sent them off to Bridgeport, and said, do a good work there. And then we moved into the South Loop, and we've been focusing here, and how do we reach this neighborhood with the gospel? And last week, I shared with you that Noah Chung, who preached and opened God's word for us last week, we've brought him on as a church planter. Why? Because we're not done. We want to put Acts chapter 18 into business. We want to see this propagating throughout the city. We want to see Noah plant another church. And here's what I believe. If you look around this room, when we launched the 11 o'clock service, the reason we did it is because we knew if we were going to be a church planting church, this is one of the reasons, if we were going to be able to send off 70, 80 folks, we needed to build a bigger base so that when we sent them off, we weren't left with just a handful. And our 9 a.m. is quite full. Our 11 a.m., as you can see, is filling up slowly but surely. But look around you. There's plenty of open seats, aren't there? Here's the, the hope and the prayer. The hope and the prayer is not that we just build one big church and keep going into bigger and bigger spaces. The prayer is that we get to a size where we have to literally birth another location. That God would continue to bring folks that we can send off our best and be a reproducing church. Look at this map behind me. This is a picture of all the locations that Park has either planted or helped to plant across the city. This is a passion we have. The blue locations are Park Community Church locations in the city that we already have. So if you went there today, they got a big logo on the door, Park Community Church. The white ones are churches that we've come alongside and we've helped to plant through a number of things. With the one, the, actually the farthest northwest white dot we just planted two weeks ago. And that was a financial gift. That's how we partnered with them. We came alongside. They had a good network. They had strong base. The pastor was in good shape. He kind of knew what he was getting himself into. And we just came alongside and said, how do we financially support you? How do we get you started and make sure you're not going to fall through in the first six months? Some of them, we get together weekly with those pastors and we provide coaching. A lot of them are young, kind of first-time pastors planting churches and we help them get their feet under their legs. Some of them we give equipment to. Some of them we send our people to. Every once in a while, I'll get up here with a different pastor who's planting a church, another church, not park, another church, and I'll say, hey, look at this pastor, what he's doing. He's planting a new work over in Westtown. If you feel called to go be a part of that work, go. Why? Because we have a passion for reaching the lost across this city and around the globe. We, I believe we are just getting started. 
And there's much more work to do. Chicago needs the church desperately. It needs it in their own backyard. We also have passion to send globally. I want to invite Ruth up here. I have preached on global many, many times. I bring this up all the time. Park has a vision to send off 100 missionaries over the next few years. We've already sent off Ruth. I don't know if you know the number. It's 13, 14. And I think there's about 30, 40 that are in the pipeline and training right now in some place in the pathway preparing to go overseas. This is your church. Why do we do it? Because Acts shows us this is what God's called us to do, to be a church that reaches the nations. From our own church, Mike Skeringa, many of you who know Mike, small group leader, leader here at Park South Loop, he is just committed to going overseas full time. He's in a process. Yes, look at that, small group team back there. And what is Mike doing? Mike picked up, he's part of our training program up in Albany Park. He has incarnated himself with a group of folks in Albany Park among a highly Muslim context because he'll be going to a Muslim country. And he's learning how to share his faith in a Muslim community, how to get to know Muslim culture and kind of develop friendships across those, uh, those barriers. And then he'll be sent in about a year. So excited for Mike. That's what we do. I want you to meet Ruth. Ruth's part of our Near North congregation, and she's in the process of getting ready to be sent off. Ruth, will you share a little bit about your journey and uh, how we can support you as you're preparing to go? Um, yes. So I felt when I moved to the city, I felt God calling me into ministry. And so I originally got involved with the Cabrini Green neighborhood. And um, I also taught uh, school here at Daystar for nine years. Um, but for 13 years, I just uh, immersed myself in the Cabrini neighborhood, getting to know the kids, bringing them to church, mentoring them. And through that, I didn't always receive that much support. But um, there were individuals along the way that would come along and support me. And some of those people were um, actually partners here at South Loop, uh, the Farleys. Um, and Jeff and uh, Keisha would come and see me every week with all the kids and encourage me and um, pray for me. And it was like such an encouragement to me. But then um, when their foster child, Mario, passed away suddenly, um, they decided to designate some money as Mario dollars to give and to bless other people. And so they gave me some Mario dollars to use with the Cabrini kids. And it was at that moment when I had like this deeper feeling of what like partnership with me felt like in ministry. And so it just had like a deep impact on me and just the body of Christ coming around me. And I have uh, several friends that are already living overseas in other countries doing ministry. And I've partnered with them, you know, financially, through prayer, through words of encouragement. And through that whole process, like I've gotten emails, uh, an email from a friend, and she asked me like if I was praying on a specific day at a specific time. And I'm like, yes, why? And she said that at that time, their family was like fighting off malaria. and. Um, at that time that she knew somebody was truly interceding for them because the symptoms of their malaria stopped. And she's like, wow, you know, God's moving. And so through that, it was another testimony of, you know, what it's like to partner with people in ministry and everything. And so as Rafe had mentioned, living up in, living up in Albany Park, I actually went through the training process uh, last year living in Albany Park and I'm part of the Park 100 and I'm planning on moving to North Africa next year uh, to use my gifts as teaching to join a team uh, through one collective 
that is already ministering in North Africa. And so all of this might seem kind of big and vague, um, but I have a few specific ways if you want to get involved, um, not only with me, but with other global partners. Um, a few ways that you can do that are, one, setting aside five to 15 minutes one day a week at like a specific time to pray for that individual uh, or that couple. And then um, two, setting aside between like 50 to $100 a month just to partner with that uh, global partner um, on a monthly basis. And then three, just writing an encouraging email um, to the global partner just to let them know that you're thinking about them. So um, I also have a table set out um, out in the gathering place if you want to talk to me afterward. Can we give her a round of applause? Park, as I wrap up, this is your church. This is what we're about. We want to have a deep love of Jesus. We want to sit in the grace of Jesus and grow. We want to have a heart for discipleship where we invest in each other and we want to send. We want to be about reaching the rest of the city and the globe. And I want to invite you into that. I want you to invite, invite you right now. I'm going to pray over Ruth as she prepares to go. And then we're going to receive the communion.